Welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I'm your host, William Hill, and today we um, are doing, as it were, our December edition of Faith and Practice with Dr. Joseph Piper. But um, just want to alert the listeners that this is actually the November edition, but we're doing it in December because there was a problem on our end, or at least on my end with the technology and so everything we did in november was lost and so we're redoing the questions so your questions weren't lost and so dr piper has had practice on those questions so now they're going to be really outstanding answers on today's program so dr piper it's great to have you back on again thank you bill and- let me suggest why don't we do why don't we do next monday um the december one i can do that then we'll get caught up. Yeah. Okay. okay. All right. So those who are so listening folks have been live, waiting patiently now for six right. weeks. Those who are listening live, um, we're gonna we're gonna double up this month, and um, and so um, we'll catch up on the questions for those who have been waiting so patiently, as Dr. Pipe has already indicated. So, brother, if you would pray for us, um, and then we will jump right in. All right, Bill. Thank you. Our Father in heaven, we bless you. You are a great God who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. To you alone belongs all glory, power, authority, and dominion. You are the great triune God. But above all, we know you as our God. We glory in your Son as our Savior and the Spirit who secures our union with you. Thank you as well for the work of the Spirit who illumines our understanding. I ask that he would do so now as we deal with these very important questions. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Very good. And, and somewhere along the way, Dr. Piper, we'll talk about the theology conference maybe halfway through. I we'll... also want to make an appeal. Okay. This is our year-end appeal. Okay, we can do that about halfway. Don't let me forget All right. um, as we chuck along through these. So our first question comes in um, from Indiana. Um, and the question is regarding the issues of worship leader. And so he asks, is it biblical for women as a worship leader to lead the congregation in prayer? Well, it's a very important question. Uh, let me uh, back up something I didn't say before, and that is the, I want to approach this from the point of not men and women, but of the fact that uh, even all men are not to be worship leaders. It's men who have been approved as I'll show this from the text, uh, mainly as office bearers or men preparing for office. So it's not a question really of male or female. It's a much more narrow issue, and that is who should lead worship. Not all men and not any women is my answer to that question. Let's look at First Timothy chapter 2. This is the context of Paul calling the church to pray for all types of people, and I think it's particularly in the context of corporate uh, worship. As Paul says in verse 7, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. Uh, Therefore, in verse 8, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. A woman must receive, quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow women to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, there are a number of principles that Paul lays out 
in this uh, section. The first place, it's men who are to lead a prayer in corporate worship. And as um, reading of Scripture is also a part of the, the leading of worship, I think it's proper to apply this principle more broadly even than to leading in prayer uh, to reading Scripture in worship and ministering the sacraments or other such positions. Um, but you notice it's not every man that is to lead prayer. It is approved men, holy hands without wrath and dissension. So who determines the holiness of a man? Who determines these qualifications? Well, those are the elders. He goes on in chapter 3 uh, to say of an elder, he must be above reproach, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. He must be one who manages his own household, keeping his children to dignity. Uh, not a new convert, that he will not become conceited. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church. And then in Titus, a very similar list in Titus chapter 1, uh, above reproach, husband of one wife, children who believe, um, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, uh, not fond of sordid gain, a good, sensible, just, devout self-control. So you see, uh, these qualifications are easily summarized in holy hands without wrath and dissension. And so basically, I think he's saying here by comparing the text that it is to be the office bearers, particularly the ruling elders and teaching elders in the church, who are to lead uh, the congregation in prayer. And then historically, we have said that men that are being approved by the session are presbytery to be prepared for ministry. They need to develop to show they have gifts to do that. Uh, and it also must be even amongst the elders, men who have gifts to do that. Uh, it's not that every man who is a ruling elder necessarily would have the gift to lead the congregation in corporate prayer. Moreover, it's an act of authority, as William Perkins pointed out in his book on preaching, that uh, the, the preacher has a twofold function, to speak to the congregation on behalf of God, to speak to God on behalf of the congregation. Uh, the person leading in prayer is, is praying for the congregation which means they must have theological discernment as well as these other uh, qualifications that are laid down, and it is an act of authority. So Paul will say then uh, that a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. So I hope this, this is clear, and then I apply it to the reading of Scripture, because Paul will go on in 1 Timothy uh, 4.13, and say to Timothy, the office bearer, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation and teaching. Because reading of Scripture, in a sense, is part of preaching. Mm -hmm. And it's to be done by the man set aside to that task, or at least by the ruling elder who has some authority in the congregation. Now, the same is true with respect to uh, the Lord's Supper. That's an act of authority, there's a fencing of the table. The elders are supposed to be uh, fencing the table uh, visually as they are uh, distributing the elements. Mm. So this is not simply a, a tradition of the 20th century. This is, in fact, a biblical requirement that we're losing today in the 21st century. Yeah, very good. Just a follow-up question, Dr. Pipe. I've had reason 
I've come across this issue, not personally here in my church, but a fellow minister. How about women singing solos? Well, then we get into a whole other issue in the first place. Should anybody be singing solos? What is a solo? Right. Um, it, uh, it's found no place in the scripture, even in temple worship. You had Levitical choirs, but you didn't have solos. So I don't think anybody should be singing solos uh, in, in church, men or women. Yep. Okay. Very good. Well, thank you for the question. And Joel writes in. Um, he has a question related to the Lord's Day and Sunday careers. Um, he, uh, he writes in, Hi, Dr. Piper. Apologize in advance for the length of this seemingly short question, but there's a variety of applications and details to go into it. He goes on, After much uplifting discussion with my family after family devotions, the ultimate question came to this. To what degree should a Christian pursue a job or career that may require them to work on Sunday? In other words, is it right for a Christian to pursue becoming a nurse or a police officer as they would be required to work on Sundays, especially early on in their career before they build seniority to request a schedule that doesn't include Sunday? Typically, that work falls under work of necessity or mercy. But how about for other jobs, say working for an airline or even a restaurant, not normally associated with being a work of necessity or mercy, where, again, you may be required to work on a Sunday shift until you get the seniority to avoid that? Or what about aiming for a career advancement that requires a month or three or six months stint or working a Sunday shift but then gets you to a better position career-wise and won't require any further Sunday work? At what point would you say, no, that's too much, or should Christians avoid any such career that would require any sort of Sunday work? Good question, Joel. First, we need to divide between what is necessary uh, work on the Lord's Day and what is unnecessary work on the Lord's Day. I think it's very important. The, the catechism makes a, dis, a distinction by saying uh, that the whole day is to be taken up in public and private exercises of worship, except in those deeds of necessity and mercy. But when the confession develops this thought about how to keep the Sabbath, it says that we are to have a holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations. But... Um, also are taken up in the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. Now, the point being made there, Joel, is that deeds of necessity and mercy are, in fact, parts of proper Sabbath keeping. These are things that need to be done uh, for uh, the sake of the material and spiritual well-being of people in the church and in uh, the broader community. So at the church itself, there'll be uh, physical deeds that the deacons and others will do in the church of taking care of logistics. Uh, it's getting to be wintertime of clearing the parking lot of a, of a late night snow, um, taking care of the walk so they're safe. We also recognize that in society, there are things necessary to be done for the keeping of the Sabbath, but also to fulfill the other part of the commandment, and that is six days you are to labor and do all your work. So yes, God's given us six days, but the Sabbath is not to be looked at in a way that would harm uh, the, uh, the six-day uh, calling that we have. So because of that, in older times, particularly <laughs> when there were certain types of mill activity, that if you uh, quit using a furnace on Saturday evening, say in smelting, it would not be ready to start uh, being used on Monday. It would probably take until Tuesday, the middle of the day or Tuesday or something to get it back to the proper heat. 
that it needed to be at. So because of that, there were certain types of activity that uh, needed to be done on the Lord's Day. We get the principle out of the sailing ships that Solomon had. If you're on a sailing ship, you, uh, you, don't, uh, you, you can't stop those necessary activities on Sunday of sailing the ship. You can start with the commercial activities. So you wouldn't go into port and trade. You, if you were a fishing vessel, you, you wouldn't be fishing and putting up fish, but you'd have to pilot the ship, maintain it. Uh, there'd be different crew activities. They could be cut to a minimal level, but they would still have to be done, and that would be part of necessity to maintain life on the Sabbath. Or with uh, police, or firemen, or uh, doctors, or nurses, uh, there are a lot of careers that uh, would entail, to some degree, uh, work uh, on the Sabbath. Also, there'd be other careers that not would not regularly require that, but um, if you're a lineman for the county, to borrow a Glenn Campbell song, um, <laughs> yeah. you, um, if there's a severe ice storm, uh, you'd have to go out uh, uh, Sunday afternoon or whatever uh, to repair those lines because people could freeze to death um, if, you, if you didn't do that. So uh, these are important things. So um, these deeds of necessity and mercy are proper vocations for Christians. Again, we can get the principle, uh, the Bible says it's okay to serve in the military. Well, military activity will entail uh, Sunday, uh, watch duty that goes on rotation or in war. Uh, our, uh, Stonewall Jackson, who was a noted Sabbatarian, um, one time... Uh, attack the enemy on Sunday, his wife, knowing his convictions, and read the account in the newspaper, wrote him and asked him why. And he says, well, if I had waited till Monday, I would have lost more men in battle, and the victory was not sure. Mm. If I attacked on Sunday, the victory was sure, and I would have lost fewer men. And so that was a deed of necessity, and I would say, in a sense, a deed of mercy done by a man who loved the Lord's Day, who wrote the the government on a number of occasions, even to stop mail delivery, he wouldn't read a letter that was uh, delivered on the Lord's Day. He would wait until Monday to open that letter. So he had strong convictions, and yet he recognized that his calling, which was a lawful calling, would entail at times um, activity on the Lord's Day. Mm. So if a man has a calling in that area, uh, he should pursue it. Now, at all times, seek to... Uh, free uh, himself to uh, to be at worship, um, and at least once on the Lord's Day, which again is another reason why churches should have two worship services on the Lord's Day and not just one for these people that would have a, a swing shift or whatever. And as one gets seniority or is able to swap with those that don't care to worship, uh, you're not they're not sinning if you let them have your time. So there's lots of ways to do that. Now, on the other hand, there are callings that uh, are not uh, ordinarily deeds of necessity are mercy. So freestanding restaurants are not needed. Again, the Puritans addressed the principle that if uh, people were staying in an inn, the innkeeper would be obligated to serve uh, a meal on the Lord's Day. That was a deed of necessity. Now, I've read in Scotland that the Presbyterian uh, owners of inns would actually invite their guests to eat with the family and wouldn't charge them for mm. Uh, for that meal, mm. but it wouldn't be wrong to charge uh, for for that meal. But a freestanding restaurant that's just open for what we call recreation eating or what recreational eating or whatever 
would not be a deed of necessity. An airline, uh, I'm going to leave that to a person's conscience in terms of is, in our society, is an airline a deed of necessity or not? I don't, I think it's not. I don't fly on the Lord's Day uh, because of that. But if someone has come to the conclusion that it is, I'm not going to bring church discipline against someone who thinks that uh, the airline is part of the deed of necessity. Now, as to working at one of these non-necessary jobs until you get uh, uh, enough career advancement so you can pick your own schedule, well, you see, I have a problem with that. That would be like saying, I'm going to go to work for you now, yes, and I want you to cheat on the bookkeeping uh, for six months. And then uh, mm. at the end, that time, I'll give you a, another position. You don't have to do that. But I'm, wondering, I'm testing your loyalty. And so, and see, we don't think about the Sabbath as serious as stealing or other sins that are uh, forbidden in the, uh, in the Ten Commandments. So uh, I, would never t- I would encourage a person never to take a job with the hope that in the future, again, you've got to, on the front end, tell your employer, these are my convictions I promise you that you, you know, you give me a job, I will be more productive for you the other days of the week than those people who are going to, to work on, on the Sabbath. They give me a chance, you know, pull a Daniel and the Hebrew friends in the prison. You know, give us a time to eat uh, uh, bread and vegetables, and if we're not doing well, okay, that'll be different. Mm. So, but I wouldn't compromise on the front end because usually such compromise does not lead to uh, a change in the future. Yeah, it, especially if those who work in the retail industry. I can speak yeah. from firsthand experience. Um, if you put your application in and you don't block off Sunday, you're going to work Sunday, and you're going to have a difficult time getting out of that down the road because you filled your application out that way. I I know a man who I I, I counsel him in that direction. Don't. Just you're not available on Sunday. Just block it out. And he, his response was, "Well, they won't hire me if if I won't work on Sunday." I said, "That's not your business. That's God's business. Let Him take care of that. You put down six days. You're open to close, whatever available, but not this day. See what happens." One man did that. Um, took my advice, my counsel, and he got hired. Another man did not. He got hired, of course. And guess where he was every Sunday? At work in the retail store. So. It, it, yeah. Also, there needs to be a consistency because sometimes the people will ask, well, tell me what you do on Sunday afternoon. Right. And if you're uh, watching television or doing stuff like that, well, so what? But if you say, well, here are the things I do. I go to morning and evening worship. I spend extra time with my children. I try to read and pray. I take a nap. Uh, the consistency is very important as well. Yep, absolutely. Great question and one uh wish more people would think through as they head towards careers and 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 get into the workforce. Right. Bill, well, yep. while we're here, yep. let's go ahead. I meant to do this last time and didn't do it. Jump down there and take up the question about uh, necessity of paying uh, nursery workers on Sunday. Well, good. Our live listener will be thrilled with that question. Uh, is William online? He is. So good. here's the question. Hello, William. This question came in through Twitter, which, by the way, you're able to submit questions uh, through Twitter, if you just use the hashtag GPTSFP, it just stands for the seminary's uh, abbreviation, and FP is obvious, faith and practice. So GPTSFP, <laughs> use that hashtag, send your question, I'll get it, and I will drop it into the bucket, and Dr. Piper will see it and deal with it. So here's one that came from Twitter. William wrote in, um, 
he asks, are churches that hire nursery workers violating the Sabbath, or is that a deed of necessity or mercy? That's an excellent question. Um, and it's a good place to start, is that is it, is it wrong to pay uh, people that would do things at church uh, on Sunday and other activities? I, in fact, I just got this question last week uh, from uh, an elder in another church with respect to a, uh, with a, with a musician. So they've got two musicians on staff that do other things, as well as a company that's singing on the Lord's Day. Uh, and they're paid because they're staff members. So, but then somebody wanted to bring in a trumpet player for one service. Um, and you can imagine this time of the year what service that might be. And um, No idea. The question, and this elder was right on target, he says that's not a deed of necessity. You know, now, if, if the pianist got sick and couldn't accompany singing and you had to pay a substitute, that's a deed of necessity. Mm-hmm. But there's no necessity in having an, an extra instrument that you're paying to come in there. So, no, I think that, that would not, he, he would be wrong, wrong to pay a person to do that. So I think you can apply the same principle to uh, the nursery. The nursery ought to be a voluntary ministry of, a voluntary ministry of the congregation. Mm-hmm. So that uh, God's people are serving. And I think I said this, uh, one that didn't get recorded uh, in another context. I've said it somewhere, that a nursery is important, not for us. My children were in worship except for a period of about six months to maybe a year, 14, 15 months. That's the growing time of a child at that point. They're going to want to move and make a lot of noise. That's naturally who they are. And so I think you need a a cry room or something for children at that point. But in our churches, our children are in church from uh, babes in arm right up through uh, one and a half, two, three, four, five, and whatever. Uh, but I tell churches, I tell my students, if you're concerned about reaching the lost and the unreformed, which we are, you got to have a nursery, and it ought to be um, the neatest, uh, no, no more attractive room in your church. Mm-hmm. Because when these visitors come that you want to come, whose kids, if they've been to church, have been in a nursery or a children's church, and if they've never been to church, then they've never been to church, and you make them keep their children in that service, they'll not come back next week. These are not spiritual people. These are people that are either unconverted or weak in the faith. And so the nursery is an outreach ministry, and that's how I would approach it. Now, ordinarily, that should be a voluntary ministry. But I could see a situation where a church either had mostly elderly people or the people that could do the nursery themselves had very young children and they needed to be with them. So it could be a, a situation where the, uh, the elders would decide we do need to hire a nursery worker uh, as a deed of necessity and mercy for this ministry. And so, again, I would leave it to the, uh, the office bearers at that point. Uh, but if, if one did that, I would be sure it was only for one service. So that person either would not be taken out of both their services or they could come back to uh, your service at the other time. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah I'm here. I just I had my mute button on. Sorry about that. Um, let me follow up. This is actually not my follow-up. This is actually a follow-up from the live chat. 
Um, Good. Someone wants to know, okay, so how do you apply that same mentality then to paying like an organist? Now, don't don't get all on the organist thing, okay? I know what I would say. I'd say forget the no, organ. I already said piano and organ. Right. So you would... Right, you got to be very careful. The, the, uh, <clears throat> the best thing to do is to uh, have someone in the congregation who would be uh, capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that's not possible, a larger church, as I said, would have somebody on staff. So they're not just doing that. They're doing some other things as well uh, in, in the church, maybe working, teaching children how to sing, stuff like that. Um, but if a church did not have uh, an accomp- someone that could accompany congregation singing well, uh, then theoretically... I think that could be a deed of necessity, but you've got to be very careful. Mm. There should be a, a, uh, a credible profession criteria or criterion. They should be members of an evangelical church, interviewed by the session uh, as a prospective member would be. So you know that you've got a uh, a person playing an instrument who, in fact, is a Christian who's going to be worshiping with the congregation. Now, in our culture, this is all the more important. In fact, some of you will remember the case in San Francisco decades ago where they hired a, a, a accompanist and discovered that the accompanist was a homosexual. And when the church, that was contrary to church's standards, uh, let the homosexual go. Not only did they have a lawsuit... Uh, but they also were persecuted, they were firebombed, all kinds of things would happen to them. So the elders would first need to lay out the criteria for a paid accompanist and make it very strict and careful according to uh, the standards of, of the church. Well, excellent, excellent question. William, thank you uh, for writing in and for your follow-up as well. Our next question comes in from, I'm not sure, um, Anonymous. And this is on the issue of prayer warriors. In other words, if there's more (laughs) prayer warriors, is it better? Um, Well, that's not, I didn't say that really well. Here's the question. Is the effectiveness of a prayer request increased by a greater number of people praying for me? Or to put it another way, what, what does the number of prayer warriors have to do with the effectiveness of having a prayer answered? Does the number of prayer warriors change the effectiveness of a prayer? Okay. Well, I think the Apostle Paul answers that question for us, not in terms of the mechanics necessarily, but he is regularly uh, setting his needs as uh, evangelist and preacher before the congregations to whom he writes, asking them to join in with him Mm. in his prayers. Mm -hmm. So there's the biblical uh, criteria criterion that uh, God has instructed us to seek many to pray for us for the things uh, that uh, we are seeking. Now, it's God's will, so we might not understand all the ins and outs of that. Uh, the, the singular prayer of a, of a faithful man, James says, uh, like Elijah, uh, can accomplish much. But uh, one thing that comes to mind is the more people are praying, the greater thanks goes to God. You know, Paul says that in respect to the giving, I think, in, in 2 Corinthians. 
the thanksgiving increases. So the more people involved, the more praise and thanksgiving goes to God. And God delights in numbers of people seeking him. And of course, all the things that are set for us in scripture, we are to pray. We're pray, we to pray together. Corporate prayer is more, and be careful, corporate prayer is superior to private prayer. Mm-hmm. The prayer meeting mm-hmm. where two or three agree, I'm in their midst. So I think that uh, even though uh, we don't know all of why God has required this, he does encourage uh, greater numbers of people to be involved in particularly important prayer requests. So when I go out to minister, if I don't forget, I post on a number of social media accounts what I'm doing and why I'm doing. And I know God answers those prayers. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people are writing me and saying, we're, we're praying, we're praying for you. Yeah, it's a really good question. I, and you went where I was going to go next. I was going to highlight the, the the advantages of social media, email, um, and other uh, at, uh, other things such as that to really press forward prayer requests um, uh, and really get them out there to a wide number, of, uh, a large number of people very quickly. And um, so there is advantages to social media, regardless of how you feel about it. That is certainly one of them. So a very good question, and thank you for writing in. Um, another anonymous question. You must be at home today. Dr. Piper. I'm sorry about the phone. I'm always... No, no, no. I don't care about the phone. phone. I would never be able to tell where you are based on the phone, but I can tell you must be at home. <laughs> I'll leave it right there. <laughs> We're moving on. <laughs> can you smell? No, but I can hear. <laughs> <laughs> sorry about the phone. No, it's not the phone. <laughs> it's not the phone. <laughs> I guarantee it. Um, anyway, um, our next question, which has nothing to do with that... Um, is anonymous as well. It's on the subject of divorce. And Dr. Pepe, as I asked the question, I would like you to apply this answer to not only ministers, but to officers at large. So elders, ruling elders, yeah. deacons, and ministers. So is it possible for a divorced man to be a minister or ruling elder deacon? If so, under what conditions? And if not, why not? Yeah, I actually applied it to officers when we answered yeah, the I think month. you did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Because this is based on the requirement laid down by uh, Paul in the passage we just read in 1 Timothy 3. He is to be a husband of one wife or a one-woman man. I think is literally what it says. And in Titus, similarly, yeah, husband of one wife. Um, Does that mean a man who is divorced and remarried has more than one wife? Well, no, he doesn't have more than one wife. He has one wife. Mm Uh, he might improperly have one wife. Uh, he could be guilty of adultery if he married wrong. But uh, what Paul has in mind here, I think, and I think that there's a number of commentators that would agree with this, is he's writing again in the missionary context. I can see this thing being asked of me in Nigeria or South Africa, any number of places. A man who has three or four wives is converted. I think it's clear from Scripture, so we have to apply the Old Testament law and the principle of equity. He may not put away one of his wives or two of his wives. He owes all of them conjugal rights, lodging, and food. Uh, And so, no, you don't break up the family because of this improper background. But such a man could not be as godly as he became. He could not be an elder in the church. He's to be a husband of one wife. So it's not applying to divorce at all. 
which brings us to the broader principle then of, is divorce a sin in itself that would keep a man from uh, being blameless or having a good report? And the answer is uh, not necessarily. There are uh, many cases, both in modern church and, and older times, where a minister's wife proved to be uh, uh, an unfaithful woman, and either she divorced her husband. I have a, a friend that happened to him, and she wrote a letter to the, uh, to the elders saying that uh, this is a good man. It's not his fault. Uh, she proved herself to be very immoral, um, consequently, and uh, those kind of things happen. So um, men who are legitimately divorced while in the ministry or on the eldership or diaconate or beforehand are not by that fact being hindered from serving in office as long as they have a good reputation. And if they have a current wife, then you apply the principles. Are they uh, managing their household well? Are their children under uh, submission? Let's take some other scenarios. Um, A man who, before he was converted... Uh, improperly divorced his wife. He's converted. He is remarried. But he repents of that and he asks forgiveness of wife and any children that were products of that marriage. At which point, God does not continue to think that this man is married to the former woman. He uh, he deserted her. Uh, that dissolved the marriage. So now does that sin before he was converted disqualify him 20 years later from serving as an office bearer? You know, if the congregation knows about his past and he has good reputation with those within and out the church and he manages his household well and has children in submission, then no, that improper divorce. Um, But take it a step further. A man who was in the church and uh, commits adultery and divorces his wife uh, and then uh, remarries but repents and comes back, (coughs) is that man then um, hindered from office bearing? Again, not necessarily. If the other qualifications are met, he makes proper confession, restitution. Um, In fact, we had a student at Greenville Seminary whose presbytery sent him uh, to seminary exactly in that uh, in that situation, mm. and so divorce is not the unpardonable sin. The covenant's broken. Uh, people must be dealt with. When Christ talks about adultery, yes, if this is going on, this person is going to have to be, uh, if they're impenitent, they're going to have to be excommunicated. But down the road, does God still consider them married to a person? They're remarried. The other person is remarried. I, I think not. Well, very good. Now that's a more liberal. Let it be known that occasionally somebody at Greenville Seminary can be more liberal than other people. Hmm. Uh, that might be more liberal than some of our hearers are comfortable with. But again, I have to go back to the scriptures. It's interesting. John Murray in his little book on divorce and remarriage, uh, he, he deals with the guilty party. And he says, I really can't say scripturally that the guilty party is hindered from remarrying. He can't. Um, if the guilty party uh, commits adultery, their spouse divorces them. The marriage is over. Is that person free to, to marry? Well, I can find no biblical reason. I mean, they should seek reconciliation with their uh, spouse. 
But if that's not possible or one's married or whatever, uh, then I don't think they're, they're continuing in sin if they, if they repent. Right. Yeah, it, it, Dr. George Knight, you mentioned this last time, and I'm just going to toss that out there because you did bring him up last time. He's probably written, in my opinion anyway, take that for what it's worth, but in my opinion it's probably the finest uh, commentaries on the pastoral epistles. Um, and I think that's the tack he takes. Am I right? Yes, I think so. Yep. And and by the way, Dr. Knight was was on the board and was an adjunct professor at the seminary for many, many years. So um, anyway, well, I think we're at a good place where, uh, Dr. Piper, why don't you tell the listeners about what's coming up in March of next year, and as well as the other item that you wanted to, All right, bring, very good. to bring to the table. Most of our listeners know that every spring... Are you there? He left me <laughs> right in the middle. <sighs> Hello, Dr. Piper. Wrong. Where'd you go? <laughs> uh, can you hear me? I can now. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know either. Start over. <laughs> okay. Uh, every spring, second full week of March, the seminary uh, sponsors a theology conference for the church. And it's a great time. It's a family conference. <laughs> we'll have lectures, but we have a lot of preaching. Particularly, we've been moving that direction more with the uh, request from the people that attend. This year, 2017, being the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg, we're doing a Reformation conference. We have four lectures on Luther and the Reformation. Uh, by uh, two Luther uh, specialists who are not part of our faculty, and then one by Dr. McGoldrick, who is our church history professor. And we're going to have five sermons on the solas of the Reformation, and that's going to be uh, Joel Beakey, Rick Phillips, Carl Robbins, one of our graduates, Cliff Blair, and I will be preaching, and, and uh, Michael Morales will be preaching those, those five sermons. So you can go online and see about the conference, and you can actually pre-register, get a very special discount right now if you do that. So we encourage you to come and join us. It's time of really great fellowship as well as edification. Uh, it's held at Woodruff Presbyterian Church, and it's just a wonderful time. I think it's one of the most important things the seminary does all year round. Yep. Then I wanted to mention as well, uh, all charitable institutions in December do a final uh, year-in um, appeal uh, for funds. And we actually get up to probably about half, close to half of our individual giving uh, in the month of December. So uh, we've done a lot of new things this year. We did a, a Giving Tuesday uh, email uh, three different emails that went out. We're doing some other stuff electronically as well as our, our regular letters. But I would encourage the people, and you've done this in the past, if they wanted to give to help support the podcast. But if you're committed to what you're hearing here, you believe that uh, we're striving to be biblical. Um, we need to raise two hundred fifty to $300,000 in December. Um, and there's an excess, an excellent ministry to give to. We keep our operating cost down in terms of administration, but it costs about $19,000 a year to train a man for the ministry. But another unique thing about Greenville Seminary is most schools get about 70% of their income 
from uh, students. Mm. But our commitment is we don't want a man leaving with debt. And so we only, this year it's less than 30% of our income comes from student fees and tuition, which means 70 plus percent must come from hearers like you people and uh, churches. And so prayerfully consider making a, a year-end gift to Greenville Seminary. Prayerfully consider adding Greenville Seminary to your regular benevolence budget. Uh, I can assure you by God's grace, the money is used faithfully and you're entering into a wonderful partnership. Yes, very good. Well said. And, and, and also, be sure to pray for the seminary, the staff, the faculty, uh, the students. Uh, they're coming to the very end of the semester now, and um, so be praying for them. And also, I want to just piggyback on something Dr. Piper said about the, about the debt and the issue of that. And, and, it, and it just strikes me as, as one who left seminary with no debt. I, I, as everybody knows, I graduated from Greenville Seminary this past May. And because I left seminary with no debt, I was able to take a call in a church that could never have paid for my debt if I had debt. And, and, and so I was able to come and minister into a small situation, whereas if I had a load of seminary debt, that would have been very, very, very difficult. And so there's many different ways which that debt-free, that leaving seminary without debt, it works into the kingdom of God for people who need pastors in smaller contexts uh, that we don't often consider. And so, again, I, just to echo what Dr. Pipe has said uh, well, um, support the seminary because it's, it's not about building the seminary's kingdom. It's about building the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means sending ministers into the field to bring that harvest out of it. So, um, so get behind it. $5 here, $5 there. If thousands of people gave $5 a month, we would they would have no issues. That's, that's the key. Little at a time. Boom. All right. Enough said on that. All right, speaking of field, <laughs> that was a great segue. I wish I'd, wish I'd done that on purpose. Um, speaking of field, Mark writes in from Harvest, Alabama, which uh, won the SEC um, on Saturday. I'm sure Dr. Piper already knows that. Well, Harvest, uh, Harvest didn't, but the University of Alabama did. No, I know that. Well, you said that to me last time, but it's still in the state of Alabama. Well, so is in Auburn, well, whom we beat a week any, ago. Does anybody talk about Well, never mind. All Be right, careful. So, Most yeah. of our Alabama students are from Auburn. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, nobody's perfect. Anyway, so his question is, 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 relates to uh, Matthew chapter 13, where he asked, to whom does the field represent in the parable of the weeds in Matthew 13, 24 to 30? Does it, Jesus says it is the world in Matthew 13, 38. But I know a few OPC ministers who saw the, who who see the field in uh, saw, say the field is the visible church, basing the argument on verse twenty four, where it says the kingdom of heaven is like. So, what are your thoughts, sir? Okay, let's quickly uh, read the text. The kingdom of heaven is like may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy's done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go gather them up? But he said, No. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both, both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barns. And the explanation then, they come and ask him, verse 36, uh, he says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, 
And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of the fire. In that place they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of the Father. He who has ears, let him hear. The first place I think it's wrong to uh, get uh, down into the detail is the, is the field, the world, or the church. Because most parables will have primarily one, one meaning. They might have a couple of things to them. But here, obviously, Christ is talking about end-time judgment. And that's when the final distinction is going to be made. That's why you see that in the last verse, the righteous will shine forth. Quoting there, I think, from Daniel, the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of the Father. So uh, the real point is that, that uh, in this world, we're never going to be able to distinguish completely believers and non-believers. And it's not us, and, and the Scripture often talks about it. That's what it means by not judging. It's not for us to make the final judgment of a person. Um, that's going to take place. Now, the temporal judgment, so in the sense the kingdom is all of Christ's people in the world. And there's going to be this final judgment uh, in which the hypocrites will be separated from the, uh, the true believers. But the kingdom of God is administered through the church. So there's really not a conflict here. So all the members of the kingdom live in the world, but their membership is, in a sense, uh, demonstrated, validated by their membership in the visible church. And so in the visible church, again, um, we're going to have hypocrites. And we don't put people out of the church because they're not meeting what standards we think a kingdom person ought to have. Because mm -hmm. what Christ says is, you're going to uproot some genuine people. You're going to do harm to true believers. So as the church exercises spiritual discernment, uh, we are to be cautious. We are to exercise church discipline. We are to exercise excommunication. But it's on the basis of two or three witnesses, clearly demonstrable sins against the Lord. So I think we keep those two. Th and then we also must remember then, and we get a lot of problems today uh, when people are, think there has to be perfect justice. There's no perfect justice in this life. The church is not going to uh, act without error. And it's better to err on the side of uh, the unclear <laughs> than it is to rule with a heavy hand. Also, if the church makes a decision, and I'm not happy I think they should have dealt with this person in a different manner. I may need to accept the decision of the church and wait till the end of the age when Christ will make everything right. Well, very good. Thank you for the question and for writing in um, on that subject. Our next question comes in from Hani. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I can Never mind. Connie Hogue. Connie Hogue from Newelton, Louisiana. And... Um, we were late last month with this question, so we're even later now. But we're closer to the we're we're heading. <laughs> Be quiet. Anyway, it's on the church calendar and and the question of Halloween. Um, and so she asked, "Does our church, the PCA, go by the church calendar? And what is the correct view of Halloween biblically?" So there are really two questions. And Connie, I'm so sorry. As I said before, I hope you listened to the live broadcast last month because you did write me this personally uh, before Halloween, and 
I was researching it, and then sent it in, so I thought I would just do it here. Let's start with the question. The church calendar, the, uh, the, the book of church order, in order to the confession of faith, against a church observing the church calendar. Uh, it was updated with by Calvin and the Reformers with emphasis on the Lord's Day. The Senate board, because practice in Dutch churches, uh, they kept what they thought was temporarily. And if you, as the people grew and mature, the, the demand for these extra uh, services, church calendar would be, of course, Advent services, uh, Good Friday, uh, Resurrection, Ascension, Pentecost. Um, and but the church didn't outgrow those. It continues today that they practice in the uh, the Dutch Reformed churches. Uh, and in most Presbyterian churches, it has never been practiced. And I was a bit shocked when I moved to the upcountry, maybe all of South Carolina, uh, to see that even our churches had the best worship would have uh, special services, uh, what they call Holy Week, uh, even some every day, others Monday, Thursday, others good, a lot of them have Good Friday services. Um, and a church, I think, has the liberty to do that if they want to. Uh, but it's not the liberty to require its people to come to those services. I think Paul makes that very clear in uh, Colossians, where he says that men may not appoint days. Now, he's not doing away with the Sabbath there because men didn't appoint the first day of the week as the Sabbath. Christ did through, through the apostles. But the church cannot pick other days of the week. The positive emphasis in Presbyterianism and in Scottish and American Presbyterianism historically has been that the Lord's Day is the day that we celebrate both the Advent and the Resurrection. Uh, and uh, we ought to do that in a balanced way. We should be singing uh, Advent hymns and Resurrection hymns, if you see hymns, uh, good ones. I can't think about half of what's in the hymn for, for uh, the Tiffany. But uh, <coughs> all year round. Now, I know men uh, who would not even preach an Advent sermon or a um, resurrection sermon on Easter Sunday or the Sunday closest to uh, to what's called Christmas? Uh, I think that's pastorally not wise. Mm-hmm. Lloyd Jones said, "You know, you got two times a year people come to church thinking about what you're going to preach about. It would really be." foolish not to preach about what they're thinking about. Right. So I always use the occasion. I, mean, I preached when I was in the pastor. I preached through books, but I always use the occasion to uh, take important texts that deal with uh, one of either one of those occasions at that time of the year. Mm. What I find very disturbing, I already mentioned the trumpet thing, is these churches that normally have decent worship suddenly go hog wild. These two Sundays of the year, I went to one church for a while. They actually brought in an orchestra on Easter Sunday and the Sunday closest to Christmas. Now, that I found that very offensive. I thought that went, it kind of betrayed the principles by which they operated the other 50 Sundays of the year. So I think that uh, a church may observe some of those services. There's some advantages. I mean, at least the people in that background have heard a sermon on the Ascension. Many Presbyterians have never heard a sermon on the Ascension. Uh, so. But uh, non-Lord's Day services in particular, uh, I think 
those are the ones you may not require. You may have them. The people may have should have the liberty to come, uh, come to them. But the historic Scottish Presbyterian, Southern Presbyterian practice was uh, the Lord's Day. Mm-hmm. Now, what is the correct view of Halloween biblically? Well, that's also difficult. Uh, Halloween, the eve of All Saints Day, is what that uh, was historically. Uh, All Saints Day was a high holy day in the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. And uh, the reason that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door uh, on the eve of All Saints Day was that that was the bulletin board and all these pilgrims would be coming to the Wittenberg Church because they had a huge collection of relics. Yep. Saints, and you came there and you viewed the relics and you would get uh, release time out of purgatory. So he used the occasion because of the crowd. Mm-hmm. He had really no other, other reason in mind, it seems to me, at that point. <laughs> but the, uh, the Eve of All Saints was initially a pagan uh, practice uh, that the Roman Catholic Church then kind of co-opted. They often did that, and even today in, in missions do that in order to attract more people uh, into, the, uh, into their, in their churches. Um, and so they, uh, <coughs> they uh, took some of the customs. Um, any relationship of, quote, Halloween with uh, any type of occult or paganism uh, should be especially avoided. Mm. Uh, that, that's clear. Um, as to your children dressing up like um, a character, <laughs> yeah, character out of one of their movies or that they like, a children's movie or something like that, and go into a few houses um, to get candy, yeah, I think that becomes a matter of, of Christian liberty. Mm-hmm. Uh, the trick-or-treat thing is, you know, if you don't mean that, at least these children don't mean that, but why even say it, you know? So, uh, around here, and, they call it trunk or treat. Don't, don't, don't ask me to explain it. Okay. So, uh, you know, our, I think if parents take the children to the houses of a few friends in the neighborhood or whatever, we had a, a friend that actually doesn't live in the neighborhood, but she brought her children to a few houses of, mm-hmm. of friends. They were dressed up. Um, and hobbit outfits and stuff like that, or a Highlander, and uh, so I don't have a problem uh, doing that as long as we stay away from uh, the uh, occult, satanic, black magic type stuff, which now is much in in the resurrection. Uh, again, now churches, and I think it's always good when we take things away to offer things. Yeah. So churches that often are doing a, a Reformation uh, party at the church or a Harvest Festival. Uh, and having a family activity, well, that's great. Hmm. Yep. I think you said more last time, but that's okay. <laughs> I did, because my research was more fresh in my mind last time. <laughs> that's right. But no, it's a great question, and so put that in your, I won't say trick bag, uh, <laughs> bad pun. Uh, put that in your bag for next Halloween, um, <laughs> and, and you know, review it. It'll, it should always be available to hear. Um, which, which reminds me, since we're, we're at the top of the, almost at the top of the hour, and I don't think we can Get really, one more question in. Uh, do you want to do the next one? I do. Okay, I knew you would. I wanted you to, too. I was disappointed. Well, then be quiet. I, Let's go. I really wanted to get to it. So John writes in from Asheville, 
North Carolina, right down the street from me, and he, uh, he wants to know about the sacred name, its use. And so he asked Dr. Pfeiffer, <laughs> what is your opinion of the use of God's name Yahweh, or the older form Jehovah, in worship? Extra information behind this, he says, the Jews have forbidden it for ages. The Roman Pope banned its use a few years ago, and the CRC and RPCNA have eliminated its use from recent hymnals, psalters, and most Bibles render it Lord, all capital, L-O-R-D. The Reformers, on the other hand, were freely, fairly free in the use of God's name and seemed to consider the ban as a superstition. Okay. Very good question, John. The ban uh, under the Jewish uh, people was a superstition. They thought it was wrong to pronounce the name of uh, Yahweh or Jehovah. <clears throat> so they, uh, they pronounced it uh, with the vowels of Adonai, another name for God. And in English Bibles now, Adonai will be capital L, lowercase O-R-D, mm -hmm. and Jehovah or Yahweh would be all caps. The background of the name is very important. This is the name that God gave at Mount Sinai when he told Moses, I am who I am. And out of that verbal construction comes the letters from which we get this word Yahweh or Jehovah. It's a glorious name. The American Standard Bible 1901 is the last Bible I know of. Uh, that used it. I wish our Bibles did use it, and I wish that our hymnals and psalters used it. It is a powerful name. Yes, it would need explanation, but it's a name of God, and it's a name that distinguishes him. Uh, you know, he is Psalm 100, know you that Jehovah is God. I tell people God's his last name, Jehovah's his first name. Hmm. Others claim the name God, but Jehovah, he alone is God, and that's his personal name. So it's a name that expresses his self-existence, his eternity, but it's his personal covenant name. And thus it is a precious name. I would like to see it restored to uh, our worship prayers. At least we can do it there and in our preaching. So you would, you, you, so you would um, Dr. Piper, you would advocate then uh, ministers when they read their sermon text or they read if they have two scripture readings in their worship, if they come across the divine name, they should say Yahweh instead of just Lord. Well, I would advocate explaining it in the sermon. I don't, you know, you don't, you don't want to get too cumbersome in the, in, the, in the reading. And people have Bibles in front of them. Uh, you could at different times explain it. When you read this word in all caps, this is Yahweh or Jehovah. This is God's personal name. Sure. And we should think of him in terms of this name. I know Dale Ralph Davis is a big proponent of that, which I appreciate, frankly. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I, I think... It's, 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 it is a glorious name, and um, it's his name. <laughs> you know, it doesn't get much more glorious than that. Well, I think that pretty much wraps up what we're going to do today. For those who are listening live, uh, just a reminder that we are going to do this again next week at the same time, right? Three o'clock? Um, How about four o'clock next week? That's fine. Um, so next week, Monday, four o'clock, and then um, and those who are going to listen on the recording, um, if you listen to the recording before 4 o'clock that Monday, you can get two faith and practices in the same day. So, Because this will be released next week into the general public uh, as the podcast uh, format. So, well, we need to do something. Well, we'll do it next week, Christmas on the Lord's Day. But we can do that next Friday afternoon. We can, because I'm going to release that right behind it as well. All right. So, um, so that they're all going to come out before the end of the year. So we turn the corner and we're clear. All right. um, for the new year. Good. If you, if you want to know what's coming up on the program, it's very easy. Just go to the website, confessingourhope.com, uh, click on the podcast coming up link, and then it will um, give you the list of people that are currently scheduled to um, 
come on the program. For those who listen through iTunes, I just want to make this note. Um, I've had our the seminary's graphic design artist who does a great job with all of our brochures, materials. Um, uh, he, he, he'll soon be a PCA pastor in the United States. Um, but Rob Dykes um, graciously took some time and redesigned the header image uh, for the iTunes portion of the, ish, uh, of the podcast. So if you have currently subscribed through iTunes and you want to see the new one, uh, unsubscribe from it, but resubscribe to it through the, uh, the iTunes store and you will see the brand new header image that uh, Rob Dykes did for us. It's beautiful. Um, so I'm very thankful uh, for him taking the time to do that uh, for us. So until next time, as usual, we thank Dr. Piper for being on the program. Um, every month he does this, and if you want to submit questions, you can do so at the website. It's very easy. Just go to confessingourhope.com, click on Faith and Practice Questions, fill out the form, send it in, and we'll deal with it um, at a later date. So until next time, we do thank you for listening. Uh, to this edition of Faith and Practice, the 31st edition of Faith and Practice with Dr. Joseph Piper, and thank you for listening to this particular edition of the podcast. Yeah.